Today I welcome Richard Backhouse, Principal at Berkhamsted School in the UK. In this episode, I discuss the importance of a strong leadership team, making school a menu, not a meal, balancing skills with knowledge, and what it means to live into your school values. I mean, if you weren't in education and you weren't a principal of a world's leading school, I mean, what job would you do? What industry would you be in? The thing I would really love to have done would be an architect, but I can't draw. These days, I think architects do lots of CAD, so I hope they don't need to. If I were to have another working life, I think I'd have a shot at being an architect. I think as a school principal, you get, well, I've got fascinated by the way in which Winston Churchill, who said, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. The way in which buildings actually change the way people think and behave, I think is fascinating. So yeah, if I had the skills, that's what I'd do. When I was at school, I wanted to be a journalist. So I guess I'm a failed journalist. Failed journalist come architect. I mean, I actually studied a bit of architecture when, in my undergrad. So I was kind of split between architecture planning and the site of construction. I studied at the Bartlett School of Architecture at UCL. And I've always been drawn by it. I'm, I'm the same. I'm fascinated. And actually, as I've seen like technologies evolving, the way that buildings and building materials particularly are constructed, creating these livable, breathable spaces that interact with the way that a human is meant to feel and think and how that shifted is fascinating. And that obviously translates into all these ideas around the future of school and the future of school design. Like how do we change functional buildings into, you know, like, let's not get another mass block with a bit of technology in it. How do you make it a space that actually is better and more fit for purpose for education? Yeah, absolutely. How does this building make people feel? How does it prepare them for the kind of building they'll be in in the future? One of the things in our new sit form building when it's built is that on one floor in the summer term, we'll be able to take all the walls out and turn classroom wing into an exam hall so that people take exams in the space they are used to sitting in and learning. You wouldn't go and play your first ever competitive match in a sport in an area in which you had no experience at all, if you could help it. I enjoy thinking through how space prepares people, what they learn from it, how they feel in it. All those kinds of things, I think, are fascinating. You're the principal of a fantastic group of schools in Berkhamsted, and you were the chair of HMC this year. What's it been like to be a chair of HMC, and what does that responsibility entail? So the HMC is, is an association of head teachers of 300 schools in the UK and about another 45 around the world. So the association exists to serve those head teachers and to enable them to do their jobs as well as they possibly can. I take the view that as chair, my role was to enable the organisation to do everything that it wanted to be able to do in order to fulfil the needs of head teachers. So I chaired a lot of meetings. I tried to get out of people's way who were doing um, the important day-to-day -day work and to run meetings in a way that enabled them to do that work really well, try and make things line up so that some things weren't contradictory with other things, to make sure that the work I did was helping the organisation to run as smoothly as possible. So it's not dramatic or headline grabbing, but for example, during my year, Melvin Roth ran a complete review of the Articles of Association and the way in which the organization was governed, I think was a fantastic thing to do. And that's going to help the organization to help heads, but it's not going to grab headlines. So I think my experience is it's about helping a smooth engine run even more smoothly without getting in the way. Did you find any kind of conflict of your time? Because you're, you're extremely busy managing a group of schools, then to find additional time to chair and steward a association of a lot of like-minded schools like yourselves. Was there ever, did you find yourself busier than ever? And actually it was just a year where you had to 
just go, I've got extra stuff to do? Or did you manage to delegate and push things out and actually step away from some of the day-to-day stuff that maybe you'd done because you've got a better leadership team in place and they enabled you to step away? I waited to stand until I had a leadership team here who I, I thought they were fantastic. I mean, there were other things before that anyway. I wanted to be a number of years into here. I didn't want to do it in my first two, three, four years. But I total confidence in the people I work with here at Berkhamsted. And I felt the timing was right in terms of my experience at the HMC, my membership of various groups within it, my understanding of the way the organization worked. And I felt it was time that I gave something back, benefited a lot from the organization, and I wanted to contribute to it. So all those played a part. And there were times when I was busy, but I don't think I ever had that experience of thinking, oh my goodness, I'm meant right now to be in two places at once. I've got terrific PA and my diary works much better when she organizes all of it. And she's brilliant at that. And as a result, I don't think I got double booked any more often than I normally get myself. The double bookings are always when I put things in rather than she does. It was very, very busy, but manageable and interesting. And I've enjoyed it. As your role of principal at Berkhamsted, how do you keep such a big family of schools feeling small and intimate that everybody knows everybody? Because, you know, as you become a group, there's always a danger that it loses its identity and you become a machine of education as opposed to, you know, the qualifying interests of each child and parent that wants the best for their children. How do you go about balancing that big school but individual feel? Berkhamsted Schools Group is a group because it wants to be a group of smaller schools in which each child is individually known and individually developed. We could be a smaller number of schools with a smaller number of head teachers. But I think once you get to, you know, we have 1,350 pupils in the senior school, I don't think it's realistic to expect one head teacher to know all those families. So we have a girls' school, a boys' school, and a sixth form, and then pre prep and all girls' prep school, Heatherson in Amersham. And that reduces the scale of each school to the level where it is realistic to expect the head teacher to know every child by name and to know something about all their families so that each child does get individual care. I think the other thing is we put a lot of time and effort into this is to train people in their form teacher or tutor role so that the, the essential pastoral care responsibilities of every single member of staff are really well developed and focused on year after year. Because in the end, each child needs to know that at least one adult is 100% on their side and 100% ready to listen to them or help them if they need it. And it strikes me that, that I can't do that for all the pupils in the school. I don't think any head teacher can. So making sure that there is someone on point to do that for every child helps them to know that whatever it is that's bothering them, there's someone they can talk to about it and someone who's on their side and can help them. You've hit the half century of terms. I like this as a stat, actually. You know, 50 terms as principal. Obviously, from the moment that first term that you were at school and now you're 50 terms in and not out, you must have seen a huge amount of change, both in terms of the way that you have maybe an educational vision or philosophy, certainly the way that kids expect to be taught. I mean, just tell us what big differences you've noticed from that first term to your 50th term. Big difference is that early on, I tended to rush into things. I was very busy with lots of meetings. Sometimes I'd be in meetings from eight in the morning to late at night, and then I would start on a paper in tray. So I am old enough, and I started long enough ago that lots of important stuff actually came in on paper, and there would be a couple of inches every day of paper. Now it's really exciting to get something important in the snail mail post. It, it, I mean, it just doesn't happen. So in those days, email was a relatively small part of the day. And of course, online meetings hadn't really been invented. 
So those are the, are the two biggest changes. And I think also over time, I've learned to get better at not rushing in, trusting colleagues to take responsibility for the things they're responsible for, helping them to discharge that responsibility without being the person who is trying to scoop it up as if you like the first receiver. So I think I've learned much more about being a facilitator and a coach, much less, I hope I do much less pace setting and um, rushing in and being the public face of things. I think also after a while, one probably I experienced less of a desire to be the public face of things and certainly no desire to be taking the credit for things which are other people's work. And therefore, by stepping back and advising the people who are acting as the first receiver, if you like, it's easier to constantly put them in the spotlight and say, look what a great job those people have done, rather than seeking to step into the traveling spot always myself. And that's, I think, has clearly been uh, manifested itself when you look at your top team were voted in as leadership team of the year. So, you know, credits don't come because of just filling out a form. They come because of substance and reality. So all the things you've just been talking about, tell me about how did that top team leadership team of the year award come about and what made it become yours as opposed to someone else's? Well, I think it's because as we went into the pandemic, we were very clear about who was going to do what. We tried to be extremely clear about role and very clear about responsibilities and then about who was going to help everybody. So at the most senior level, we had an early morning check-in together initially, and then we had an evening check-out together. So that beginning and every, end, every day, people would say, these are the things that are particularly on my plate. And at the end of the day, I haven't managed to solve these problems. I need more help with this. Or I've managed to get through a whole load. I'm available to help other people tomorrow, that sort of thing. So we were very careful to check in and only for five or 10 minutes on a quick Teams call to make sure everyone was managing their portfolio and sharing ideas, cultivated a, an atmosphere of being relentlessly positively critical of each other's ideas so that the idea is that nothing gets to the end of the runway that doesn't deserve to. And I say to my team, please shoot things down before they get airborne. I'm in much more trouble if one of my bad ideas gets airborne than if it's shot out of action while it's still on the runway. So I think by giving each other that sort of candor of feedback constantly, we were able to support each other and encourage each other, critique each other, do what we call pre-mortems on things before they went public, make sure letters had been reviewed by two or three people to make sure that they reflected different personalities and therefore were readable and made sense to a lot of different kinds of people, get ahead of things, move quickly, communicate early and often. Those kinds of things we did together as a group. There wasn't any one individual, I don't think, who dominated. We saw it as an entirely team effort. I guess that's the root of it, isn't it? A team needs to be composed entirely of people who are will be subsumed to some extent into the team. And I guess as a football fan, I'm not going to name the clubs, but there are some clubs whose uh, superstars haven't always blended together to make a really effective team. And we didn't try to do that. We tried to be much more equal, I guess, in our, in our approach to the tasks ahead of us. And then one of the team, unbeknownst to me, thought this has gone really well and wrote it up and submitted it. So the first I knew about it was when we were notified that we'd been shortlisted. So up we went to the House of Lords and um, in a rather lovely way, we discovered we won. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. When you have a great leadership team in place, there's a culture there that you're all pulling together. How do you ensure that that culture as well is you don't isolate yourselves from everyone else because suddenly it becomes you are the leadership team driving all this direction, getting all the accolades, yet 
the processes, the values you put in place have to go filter down to all of the departments, all the teachers, but also the rest of your community, the students who want to turn up. Are they getting a better education? The parents joining and going, am I getting a better experience at Berkhamsted? How did that work out? And have you noticed a shift because you've got a better team in terms of educational outcomes or feel? Teams develop, they rely on relationships. So as time goes by, the way you work together creates what the team is and what it becomes. We've done a lot of work here under my predecessor. There was a book, Multipliers, that the top team had studied together and worked on. When I arrived, I added some work by an American, Patrick Lencioni. And he encourages teams to be really candid with each other, but never personal in criticism. So we've fostered this, this atmosphere. When we go into team meetings, everyone will speak their mind and say exactly what they think about whatever is tabled, but do so in a way which is never degrading or, or in any way unkind to the person whose idea it is, always constructive. So we've done lots of work on that. And then more recently, the senior team have done some work on the build Torbert action logics, moving through situating our authority and our expertise or our achievement, more in our ability to ask the right questions and to have a dialogue which brings out good ideas from large number of people and refines them in groups of people so that one is always looking at something which is the output of more than one person's work. And it all benefits from multifaceted approach and willing to hear wisdom from anywhere, I think, not assuming it will come from the place you might most naturally expect it comes. I think those all play a part. And then individual, when one is selecting for a team, I think one has to select really carefully, induct carefully, train carefully. I've been really lucky. I inherited a great team here from my predecessor. We've had some fantastic people join. So I sometimes wonder what it is I do well. I'm surrounded by great people who do lots of fantastic things well. And I do my best at adding to that mix. But I hugely admire the capabilities of the people on the top team whom I work with. It's a great place to be when you've got a great team working with you. You've said, and I think most schools and leaders will say that parents look for a variety of things in schools. You know, it hasn't changed. You know, a parent wants the best outcome for their child. And, you know, we talk about breadth of curriculum, co-curricular and all those bits. We're obviously constrained a little bit too by the educational system and measurement through whether it's the GCSEs, IGCSEs, whether it's the IB, whether it's through A-levels sometimes puts a restriction on maybe school's ability to stretch what they believe a parent wants because you're still constrained by the conveyor belt to get them to an outcome, to get them to the next stage of education. Have you noticed parents' educational priorities change over the years you've been in charge at Berkhamsted? I don't think I've noticed a significant change. I think parents want their children to do well and be well. We all love our children and want our children to be happy and successful. The means to achieve that, I think, understanding around that, I think teaching has been massively professionalized during the period I've been a teacher. It's much more common now for me to hear senior colleagues or classroom teachers justifying their practice on the basis of research that they've read. 32 years ago, when I came into teaching, I don't think I ever heard anyone speak like that. And there was no evidence of thinking like that. It was uh, experienced schoolmasters and schoolmistresses working on the gut feeling acquired by experience was much more normal. I do think there's more understanding now of the process being of education being really important as well as the outcome, that what people learn by doing things, what does one learn through the experience of taking A-levels rather than simply what are the letters that you are awarded by the examiner at the end of the course to reflect your abilities. 
I certainly reflect on the really important things I learned at school, and they were largely snapshots of experiences where I was forced to reconsider how I was approaching things. And some of those I look back to and they're lessons I rely on still. I remember getting halfway around a naval assault course with a team I was leading, everything going badly wrong and thinking, what do I do here? The answer, which was, I didn't know the answer. So get the team together and say, does anyone have any ideas how we get out of this? Someone did and we did it and we got out of the problem. And I kind of returned to that sort of experience in my own education. And therefore, I wish for those kinds of experiences that you might get from a halftime team talk in a sport or from a moment when things are not going entirely right in a play performance or the practice of rehearsing for a concert or from the experience of going on DV expeditions or being in the combined cadet force. All those things, I think, as well as what goes on in the classroom, of course, give an opportunity for people to learn things. And there are some children who won't struggle in maths. Maths is something that makes sense to them all the time. So they need to do something like maybe a DV Gold Award, where they will find the expedition a real struggle. So they will learn perseverance through DV rather than maths. But other pupils might find DV Gold Award really easy, and they might need to do A-level maths or, or a different A-level in order to have that experience of needing grit and perseverance and determination. Young people are so different from each other that actually I think they learn different things, different skills. They have different journeys through sometimes the same parts of the curriculum. Breadth is really important because it gives everyone the opportunity to learn all those different lessons, perseverance and grit and all the other ones that are essential to learn for success in life. And how do you ensure that the education that you do offer is fit for purpose and relevant for the generation of students that are going through your school to come out and get a job that is going to manifest itself in making a difference to whether it's a planet, to the country, to themselves. We know that the, you know, if we were to tar them all with one breath, that the Gen Zs coming through are more in touch with those things, but they may be constrained by they don't necessarily have that within the educational curriculum framework. How do you ensure that you are plugged into that relevancy so they do come out and are more kind of fit for purpose for the world? I think heads do two things. One is they foster the conversation inside the school. I encourage all our staff to listen to parents, to listen to what's going on in the outside world, to notice and pay attention. I don't think that's something that can be concentrated in any one person. So I think we need to be very attentive to what's going on outside schools. That's why I sometimes say school is the menu, not the meal. School is an education is an end in itself, and it should be really fun because it's learning. But it is also something which is meant to prepare people for the world that they will go into. If everyone isn't listening to what that world is like, then the education is going to be compromised by that not listening. So we listen to parents, we listen to former pupils, we listen to people who we can get to come and talk to us about what's going on outside in the world. And I think that's really important. So there's an internal conversation and there's an external conversation. We need to be talking about what we notice, but we also need to be engaged with the world outside about the changes they notice. And I guess in a normal school structure, that's part of the function of governance, to bring in ideas and thinking and external frames of reference to measure what's going on inside the school to what those governors in a wide variety of worlds of work and doing their own looking forwards for their own businesses to hear how what we in the school is doing measures up to what they're doing. One more thing, which is we sometimes need to just, and we've done this, trawl employers' websites, see what it is they say they're looking for in their employees, and then 
cross-check that against what it is we're teaching pupils to make sure that the matrix is fulfilled, that we can, I don't want to make it sound like a tick box exercise because that shouldn't be, but we can cover all the things it is which will be demanded that we could possibly know will be demanded of our pupils in their lives after school. In truth, though, and I've recently been very influenced by the 100-year life by Grattan and Scott, who say that they observed that a young person born in 1998 has a 50% chance of living to 100. And that for that generation, the traditional three-part life, education, work, retirement, isn't going to be possible because one won't be able to save enough, fast enough, to be able to retire for good at, say, 65 or 70. So they suggest people are going to go in and out of work and in and out of education and in and out of full-time work and part-time work in a complex way throughout their lives. I think we also need to prepare young people for that agility that they don't expect simply to go through school, university, get a eight till six job, five days a week, 47 weeks a year for 40 years and then retire. I don't think there'll be many people in the future who have that working pattern. There may be a, a small number, but I think there'll be the exception rather than the rule in the future. I completely agree with that. Just seeing that, how that's playing out with my own eldest, eldest kids and what I see with friends' kids as well, and also with the youngsters that I employ in this agency, you do get to see, you know, in terms of what their careers are, their adaptability. I think the whole notion of, of site saving for retirement is something our generation have got to stop telling our kids they need to do because someone once said, saving for retirement is like waiting for the song to finish. And you never, you never wait for the song to finish. You want to listen to the song. We forget that we're living. We forget that we're enjoying the moment or in a dance. And you never at that moment want it to be at the end. And yet the first thing we say to kids when they graduate and get a job, don't forget you've got to save for when you finish working. And it's almost alien to the whole notion of going, oh my God, I'm going to be, I can't live because I need to keep putting money away. I agree and I disagree with that because I think we might need to reframe what it is they're saving for. Save for when you go traveling after 10 years of work. Save for when you take a gap year to reconsider your options when the first career you're in begins to come to a close. Or save for when you choose to go back to university. Save for the things that you decide you want to do during periods of time when you plan not to work. No one is going to choose to work full time for 55 years. That's going to be very, very hard for this generation to sustain. They will need periods of recharge and refreshment, refreshment of their skills and their education and of their energy. And I think it makes sense to encourage them to save for that. I don't think that means that they're not living in the meanwhile. But I agree with you. Saving for a 30-year retirement is going to be, that's like um, looking for a mythical creature. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I want to talk about the menu. I like the simplicity of education being a menu. What should go on that menu and should all schools follow the same menu? I don't think all schools should do the same thing because I think parental choice is a good thing. And children are different. So I guess children's needs from education, children will choose different paths. Those choices and abilities will be different. So I think a degree of variety in schools is is a good thing. I think quality assurance for parents is important, but I don't think schools should be made identical. Inspection is to raise standards, not to standardise. Schools should be allowed to be different, but I think they should, each school should be looking forward to the needs of their pupils aged 25, 35, 45, 55, 
65, 75. And wouldn't it be great if some former pupils from every school were looking back on their time at school aged 35, 45, 65, thinking to themselves, this is really interesting. I'm facing a challenge now. And I sense that some of the preparation for this challenge was done while I was at school. And I didn't necessarily appreciate that at the time, but I can see that the skills that I'm about to deploy were ones that I did begin to foster in my years of education. That would be a tremendously positive thing for our former pupils to be able to look back on. And I think it would give them a huge advantage because the brain is much more changeable and developable when they're in their teenage years. So, you know, the biggest opportunity to have that effect, I think, is while people are, are young and in schools. This idea that we want everyone to reflect, to go, yeah, I've, I learned about resilience, perseverance, hard work, reflection, all these great skills that I can use as an adult. The rub then comes with the knowledge or the data or the fact that we need to perform and pass exams. How do we sit with content or knowledge versus those skills? Will I go back and go, actually, everything I learned about you know, 14th century monarchs has been absolutely you know, pointless for me in my career? It all should be going, actually, it taught me to research, to understand, to reflect. Is that what we should be hoping for? or Because it's not always going to be career-oriented, the knowledge I gather at schools. I'm going to make a guilty confession at this point, which is that I gave up history at the very earliest opportunity at school. So your choice of example there is a, is a really good one. I got to the end of year nine and I thought, I don't really like history and I gave it up. What I notice about people who have done history for a lot longer than I did, and those particularly who did degrees in it, is their capacity to hold a range of information in their head at the same time in great detail, and to use that as a picture against which they make decisions. Their capacity for that grasp of detail is incredible. And then their ability to turn that information into a persuasive argument about why a particular course of action should be followed. I think one can often spot people who've done a history degree in my professional life because of their capacity to master that detail and fashion it into persuasive writing or speaking. Individual subjects, content breeds skills. I certainly think these days everyone needs enough knowledge that enables them to spot when what the information they're being given is true and when it's not. And if we had a curriculum that was completely content free, I think our ability to be conned via the way in which we receive the algorithms which deliver us our news would be greatly enhanced over what a content-heavy education gives. But there's got to be a balance there because skills last longer than content. And when I go on holiday to France, I'm aware of the fact that A-level French made me fairly fluent in French at 18, but it's not something I find very easy now. And when someone asked me the difference between a menuisier and a charpentier this summer, I couldn't remember. It's quite an important distinction for the person who was asking the question, but I didn't know the answer. I can go to Google, of course, now. But sometimes some discussions require an instant reaction, and we fashion those on the basis of the frameworks of knowledge we have. So I think some frameworks of knowledge are always going to be important. Berkhamstead encourages a spirit of adventure. How do you foster this, especially in more reserved pupils? I think adventure can be shown in every context. I mean, the fundamental answer to that question, I think, is that children should believe that they're not going to be laughed at in school. When a child puts up their hand in an English lesson and says, I think this poem is about love, that's a slightly dangerous thing to do. And that adventurous answer is going to be put at risk by an atmosphere in which other people might be unkind. 
to that pupil because they've been adventurous in their answer. But the ability to be adventurous in that way in the classroom and risk a wildly wrong answer is the way in which I think young people will have the experience of being wildly right, saying or asking a question which is absolutely on the money. And then to have that experience of thinking, wow, I just did that. I can go beyond what I know and what I feel comfortable with and come out with a really good result. Because that, I think, leads to excellent learning. I remember a large number of years ago in a podcast, I shouldn't name the pupil, pupil asked me a question in an A-level economics lesson, which in the 1920s earned the person who asked it a major prize. And no other pupil in my economics teaching has asked that question. That pupil went on to get a C grade at A-level, but he had the intuition in one lesson to ask a question which was just brilliant and wildly right and cut down in economic theory as not even making sense as a theory. In that lesson, I was able to say that is the most brilliant question that I will hear this year. And to make that, people realize that by being adventurous and asking something which seemed possibly like a stupid question, actually, he secured a major triumph. And I think that's where adventure leads us. It leads us to that point just beyond our known capabilities to the thing that thrills us. I think that's true in academic learning, true in outdoor activity. I think it's true in sports. I think it's probably true in the creative arts, although I'm not as skilled or as experienced in that. And I think it's true professionally. I think even as we coach people as leaders and managers, when we lead people beyond what we might have thought they were capable of and see them manage it, those are great, great thrills. And I think that's where some of the most fulfilling moments in one's life come from. So yeah, I firmly believe in that as something young people should be taught to do and to expect throughout their lives. Adventure leads to risk, as you talked about, and risk or the risk of failure is something that humans don't like anyway. We don't like to accept the fact I might be wrong or I might get this wrong. And when you're a a teenager going through a huge amount of physiological change and emotional change, everything about that period of your life is difficult. To be able to then take a risk, take a chance to get it wrong is quite difficult because you know it's also the other side of where your brain and your body's going I'm way out here you know and as you kind of get into your sixth form days you you become more confident in, in your ability how do you create that environment where anybody can go do you know what I can give it a go I think it's breadth of curriculum yeah some people may do it in the bold first pencil stroke on a piece of paper when they're sketching some people might do it in taking on a DT project at GCSE that everyone says, oh gosh, that's very ambitious. Are you sure you're going to be able to bring that off? Others might do it by asking in a lesson, are you sure that's the right question to ask, sir or miss, rather than answering the question? Others will do it in sport by trying the thing which is not a sort of sideways pass that goes nowhere, but which is safe. So I think it's about providing each young person with a broad array of opportunities so that each young person is able to find the environment within school and, and without where they can first begin to practice those things. One of the things I've noticed about talking to entrepreneurs is that they often talk about the things they've done that didn't work and the need to just say, oh, well, never mind. Let's try something slightly different. And the number of entrepreneurs who've had businesses that have not worked the first time, and it's been their second or third or fourth attempt that has been successful. And it seems to me that the way we pick ourselves up and dust ourselves down and have another go I would never have been skiing more than once if I gave up when I first fell over. In a funny way, the enjoyment we get from skiing makes it easy to see that stopping the first time you fall over would be 
uh, I mean, it would stop almost everybody from skiing, wouldn't it? Skiing is something widely held to be great fun. Those sorts of lessons, I think, can be integrated into the life of the school. Try again. I mean, after all, I hope it's not on cinefilm anywhere in my parents' attic, but I'm sure when I started learning to walk, I had some embarrassing moments when I dropped down and hurt myself, but that didn't stop me learning to walk. So I think it's something that's inbuilt to us very early on. Otherwise, I don't think we would learn those basic things, walking, running, jumping, because we have to learn to try things which don't work the first time. But then it's having an environment in which it's not celebrates failure. It's okay with it. Is there a need then to have teachers point out when students have risked? Because sometimes students won't know they've risked anything, right? They may have said something, but in the moment, they don't know that they've actually taken a chance. Is it down to the teacher then to, you know, not maybe in front of everybody, because that again could be socially isolating, but to pick them up afterwards, a bit like you would probably with a member of staff said, well, well done for speaking up about that subject. You do it privately. One of our school values is be adventurous, which I think is why you're asking me these questions. We now give prizes out for the school values. We're moving from giving prizes out to the person who does best in each subject to the people who best demonstrate by the things they do, what the school values are. Yes, it is about that organic conversation, as you described, but it's also about building into the structure and framework of the school, the way in which it rewards the values, which it's trying to encourage everyone through the whole community to live out and to espouse. So I think it's about rewinding, if you like, thinking from scratch. What would it look like if these were the things that we sought to reward in all our reward structures and frameworks and policies and so on? Every school celebrates success. And this is always my issue when I kind of look at schools' authenticity and where they sit with, you know, whether it's through marketing or communication or or their perception out there. Every school has success. You all are successful at academics. You'll have a pool of kids who are very good and get their straight A's. You'll have a pool of kids who are brilliant at sport who can play the oboe. You all have that success, but actually, are you living into your purpose, your vision, your mission, your values? It's really difficult. And a lot of the time, it sits there as a corporate governance piece that schools organizations put on their websites or their collateral. But it's a really difficult thing then to go, well, are we living into it? So I really love the fact that you shifted some of your reward structure, because that's absolutely what it's about, that your community buy into it. And it's not just language that we said that these are values that we've written because they feel right. We're living into these, which is the true actually test of any good brand is that your community live and breathe it. Yeah, it's a really simple thing. um, But our press statement when we got our exam results this year was that the exam results were great. They demonstrated the pupils had lived out the school's values. They were the consequence. It was great that they were great, but it was also great that the fact that they turned out well evidenced the pupils living out the values of the school. process that made them great results, that was most pleasing rather than the great results in and of themselves. Because I think if you do, if you teach the right processes, you get the right outcomes. I heard Anna Watkins, the Olympic gold medal rower, talk a few years ago, and she said they never aimed for a gold medal. They just aimed to train really well every day. And the outcome was they won because they could control how well they trained. And they focused on just doing their very, very best in the things that they could control and the things that they had some sort of influence over. In the end, the race in the final, the outcome would be the outcome. That kind of approach to lots of things is it's free. And I realize outcomes matter for other reasons as well. People set their heart on a, a place at a particular university. Of course, those things matter. I don't want to suggest they don't. But I think people realize their ambitions. 
by working on the way in which they're going to get there rather than fixating on the destination. And I completely sign up to that in terms of a, how we, I run a business, but also what I'm also trying to push into my four kids because it is, it's all around effort and structure. And, you know, I always say you will be rewarded for it. My son passed his driving test. You know, he thought he would fail. He was very, he wasn't confident about it, but he put the hours in. He was, he was ready, but he put himself under a ridiculous amount of pressure because of the risk of failure. And, you know, I come on the back of this podcast, having just heard that he'd pass and go, that's fantastic. So I can go back with this sage advice from Mr. Backhouse as well to back it all up because the effort is rewarded. I did lots of things not very well as a parent, influenced by my wife. One thing that I'm sure we did at her suggestion, which was absolutely right, was we bought our children something for the way they revised and prepared for their A-levels before we knew the results. That kind of thing, um, the way you went about that, the effort that you put into it is what is then rewarded. The results are great. They follow from those things. But I think it's important that we follow that kind of approach so that young people do what they can, not what they can't. As ever, it's been amazing chatting to you. Thanks ever so much for carving out some time with me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure talking to you as always, Simon. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.